Welcome to the newest episode of RevDem. I am Ferenc Lotso, and it is my pleasure to host Ireneusz Pavel Karolewski today, who is a professor of political theory and democracy research at the University of Leipzig, and whose main areas of interest are democratic theory and the problem of democratic backsliding, as well as questions of nationalism, collective identities, and citizenship. Professor Karolewski is the author, among many other publications, of the book Citizenship and Collective Identity in Europe from 2009 and of Nation and Nationalism in Europe from 2011. Now, his newest book, co-authored in the German language with Klaus Legevi, is titled, and I'm translating, The Visegrad Connection, A Challenge for Europe, which we are here to discuss today. I should perhaps briefly say that Professor Karolewski's co-author, Klaus Legevi, is the former uh, director of the Kulturwissenschaftliches Institut Essen, uh, the Institute for Advanced Study in the Humanities in Essen, and he is currently a professor at the University of Gießen and the author of a long list of widely read publications. Now, the Visegrad Connection, your new book, uh, discusses the gradual erosion and, in fact, the steep decline of democracy uh, in the four Visegrad countries, uh, Czechia, Hungary, uh, Poland, and Slovakia. And contrary to many previous interpretations that focus primarily on Hungary and Poland, uh, you diagnose similarly serious threats uh, in both Czechia uh, and Slovakia. Next to party state capture, you also analyze what you call corporate state capture. So as a starting point for our discussion, could you explain to our listeners what you mean by those two expressions? and how they are manifested uh, in the different Visegrad countries. Absolutely. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's my pleasure to be and talk with you about our uh, recent book. Yes, our main um, concept is the concept of state, of state capture and its two versions, the corporate and the party state capture. And we argue indeed <coughs> that the problem of state capture has been serious for already decades, we can argue, in the countries of Central and Eastern Europe. The difference between these two versions of state capture is that some uh, forms of state capture, specifically the party state capture, um, is more visible than the others. The corporate state capture is less visible, but is equally serious, or it follows the same logic of state capture. So the idea and our argument um, at the same time, is that uh, democracy doesn't start and it doesn't end at elections. So we don't, uh, of course, elections are quite important, free elections specifically for democracy, but equally important is the existence of independent institutions like courts, like independent media, like um, independent um, control institutions uh, in the political system. Now, the state capture is something that describes the limitations in the independence of such institutions. And they can happen uh, on two paths, right? State capture can be about subverting independent political institutions, uh, such as central banks, such as constitutional courts, by powerful uh, oligarchic actors, like firms, like conglomerates, um, um, 
that become or have become uh, powerful and influential specifically in Central and Eastern Europe during the transformation process. And we argued that this was the case uh, in Slovakia and the Czech Republic, mainly, of course, not exclusively, but mainly, or the state capture, which is subverting of independent institutions, uh, can happen on the path of uh, a political party or several political parties uh, doing this, which is the case in Hungary and Poland. So we use these two types as ideal types, of course, because it's possible that we have mixed cases and the one case doesn't really exclude the other case, uh, party state capture and corporate state capture. We can see, for instance, in Hungary, which is an ideal type of uh, party state capture that certain features of corporate state capture are also in place uh, after party state capture was successful. So it's more complicated, of course, in the empirical, empirical reality, but we argue to better understand the logic of state capture, the logic of limitations of independent institutions, it makes sense to see these two paths to um, less democracy, to democratic backsliding by defining and by looking, by analyzing state capture, the corporate and the party state capture. And as I mentioned, um, corporate state capture might be less visible and often is because it is not necessarily about a straightforward um, regime change, if you like. Uh, for instance, it is not, it's not necessarily about putting party loyalists on the bench of the constitutional court, as is the case in Poland and Hungary. It is rather about uh, subverting the very working of specific courts by political corruption which leads to similar results, but it's less visible to the public. Um, but it's equally dangerous because to the public eye, um, oftentimes the lawyers are quite um, disconcerted, I would say, how to analyze the Czech Republic, the changes in the Czech Republic and in Slovakia as opposed to Poland and Hungary. And they argue, okay, there is no rule of law violations, then it's a clean, um, or it's a clear cut, um, uh, situation in which we have uh, the um, sustaining of democratic standards. In our argument, it's not the case, right? It's the, the same type of logic, which is about power uh, concentration. It's about um, subverting the division of power. It's about subverting independent institutions, such as mainly such as courts, but also media, but through different paths, right? In the Czech Republic, for instance, we see uh, the uh, the current prime minister, Babiš, who is at the same time a very powerful um, oligarch who controls uh, parts of the media landscape of the country. And of course, the media uh, owned and controlled by Babiš and his firms, they, of course, show a specific tendency to report about his successes and, and his failures. In the Polish case, for instance, it is the state-owned uh, firm, uh, energy firm Orlen, that bought many uh, press outlets, and the logic is the same. The reporting is, uh, of course, very conducive to the party line of the ruling party now in government. So the logic is the same, but the visibility in the parts might be different. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Thank you so much for that. That's, that's really uh, insightful. And I wanted to try and go a bit more deeply uh, into the argument uh, of the book. Now, 
a key part of your argument seems to be that there is really a new quality to political institutions and to political culture more generally uh, in these four countries. Uh, you diagnose the rise of demokratur, which again might be roughly translated as democtatorship or so. Now you view these uh, democratures as, as, as a form of a dual uh, state, right? This is of course in accordance uh, with the theory first proposed by Ernst Frankel. And you discuss also political capitalism and what you call extractive institutions, right? Where independent institutions are under attack and where even constitutional measures may serve at the cause of repression, in fact. Now, at the very same time, you highlight that political capitalism in these countries continues to coexist with neoliberal features. So how would you actually characterize these democtatorships and the workings of political capitalism in these countries? And why do you think that such a theory that, again, that you propose about the dual state is in fact more apt at accounting for the developments in the Visegrad countries than other previous approaches such as those that measure democratic standards and their decline. Indeed, we use the concept that was introduced by Ernest Frankel, a German lawyer who um, was trying to analyze the uh, national socialism, or specific legal aspects of national socialism. We argue in the book that um, Frankel was, um, the approach by Frankel was interesting, but not really insightful when analyzing national socialism, because national socialism was a totalitarian system. And this duality of law that he characterized at the very beginning of the national socialist rule was interesting, but not really sufficient to understand the logic of national socialism. So we take the concept uh, of Franklin and argue it's more interesting or more enlightening to use it with regard to the democratorships as you translated the the concept. Because we do argue that the changes in uh, Central and Eastern Europe actually led to a new quality to a difference of kind rather than difference uh, of degree, right? Because the majority of analyses, which are also quite insightful on the one hand, uh, they um, see the problem of the democratic backsliding as a problem of degree, because they analyze this on a scale. They argue, okay, we have different uh, deteriorations uh, until there is a failure of democracy. And we can see this, um, the problem of this analysis when we take a look, for instance, at the um, a variety of um, democracy project that for many years argued, well, we see this backsliding uh, across the globe, but it's not really a huge problem. It's just a slight recession. Only recently, uh, the uh, index uh, has argued well, but now Hungary is not a democracy anymore, even though two years ago, uh, the same uh, analysis, analysis argued, well, it's on the brink of, uh, of, of, uh, of being an authoritarian system. So this approach of showing uh, that we have to do with the degree, we have to do with the scale, doesn't seem um, to capture the main problem. Of, of the democratorships, as we argue, because our uh, argument is we have to do with a new type of a political system. And this is something that includes both democratic and authoritarian uh, elements. 
which actually is an authoritarian system, right? So it's not a hybrid system because there's also this argument that we have to do with, with hybrid systems, but hybrid system doesn't really mean that it's partially democratic, it's partially authoritarian. It is authoritarian because it's not democratic. If the, when democracy stops to be fully democratic, it becomes an authoritarian system. But we argue that it needs to be understood better by analyzing a duality that you've mentioned. The duality of uh, a prerogative state and normative state, as Frankl called it. He argued that there is this duality. As I said, he pointed this out with regard to national socialism, but uh, not really convincingly, at least with hindsight, of course, what we know, know all about the genocidal impact of national socialism and its totalitarian uh, twist, of course, that was much more than, than a duality, but the dual character of the state is quite visible with the democratorships, because on the one hand, we see authoritarian turn in Poland, Hungary, we see it also in the Czech Republic, we see it also with, in, uh, in Slovakia. In Slovakia specifically, it was seen already in the 1990s, we start actually our analysis with Slovakia to show that Actually, we should not be surprised uh, when speaking about Central and Eastern Europe, at least to some extent, because Slovakia was a precursor in not necessarily in a very good sense of being a precursor, but it was uh, with the major governments in the 1990s and their authoritarian um, shift in that time, because it seemed that Slovakia of, has overcome this authoritarian phase that it's um, uh, entered a new fully democratic phase, but it's not our argument. Our argument is that these features of authoritarianism and, and democratic elements actually, actually were combined all the time, but now actually they uh, reach a new kind. It's not just a question of degree, but a new kind, a new quality in which these um, democracies stop being democracies and are authoritarian systems, but they're not authoritarian like in Russia or in Turkey. It's still a different kind of authoritarian systems because they still have democratic elements, specifically uh, uh, elections that are not rigged, which uh, are quite important because there is still a chance uh, of the ruling parties, as was the case in Slovakia, to lose these elections, even though the ruling parties and the ruling actors are trying a number of tricks, they're trying a number of technologies, if you like, to, to use the Foucauldian term of policy technologies, to change the regime to their favor. Uh, and for that reason, it's already an authoritarian system, but it's democratorship, meaning that there are still elections that are quite free or partially free. They're not tricked, they're not falsified until now. It can change, of course, when the uh, elections in Hungary um, next year will be rigged, will be falsified, or the parliamentary elections in Poland in, in, um, in two years. Then that would be, of course, a further change towards dictatorship rather than remaining democratorship. And there are, and we argue in the book that it makes uh, in fact, sense to analyze these developments as a new kind of a political system because we can clearly see uh, different features of democratorship that is different, that are different from democracies and different from authoritarian systems. For instance, there's a control and there are uh, party political nominations uh, in the courts, which is a specific logic of a dual state, meaning 
that there are still courts that are independent. There are judges that make decisions that are against the will of the Polish government, say. There are still independent courts in the Czech Republic, even though there are many very strange decisions of the courts, of the courts that were against uh, the rule of law, you can argue specifically uh, concerning organized crime and people that were involved in uh, very strange consortiums involving political corruption, involving uh, politicians, uh, entrepreneurs, and organized crime. So the courts were not working as they supposed to work, um, but still there are independent judges, some of them, right? So we have this duality of a political system that we can see in the Czech Republic and also in Poland. But at the same time, uh, in Poland, in Hungary, the party, the ruling party is trying to push through political nominations in the courts to increase its outreach um, to the courts and control it better. There is a increasing instrumentalization of legality, uh, for instance, with the constitutional court, which we have seen in Poland with the issue of abortion, for instance, which was a decision by the court, but actually it was a political decision made uh, in, you know, in the core of the political party and carried out by the so-called constitutional court, which is not independent, at least in our analysis, it isn't. But at the same time, many um, judges remain independent or trying to remain independent. So hence the duality of the state, right? that there is this prerogative state, state that is trying to get as much as possible under its control and of course, uh, concerning the courts, concerning the media, there, there is resistance against that. And uh, the resistance, it's not always successful. Uh, we can see that nowadays in Poland with the new law against that uh, limits the pluralism in the media. We could see that quite clearly in Hungary where the uh, state control foundation CASMA was introduced and concentrated in its hands uh, a huge majority of the media landscape. So this is also a, a dual state. And what we also argue in the book, it's not just about uh, state institutions or media that are supposed to be independent. It's also about civil society, because this is also a feature, feature of the dual state that um, the civil society has become uh, more and more a subject of uh, state encroachment, of a party state encroachment or encroachment of oligarchic uh, actors in the Czech Republic and in Slovakia, meaning that parts of the civil society have uh, become pseudo-civil society or state-controlled civil society. Uh, further research is quite clear on that. It shows that uh, uh, state-controlled civil society or state-finance-funded civil society uh, has arisen uh, in many countries, uh, a research that has been known from uh, Ukraine and from Russia, uh, that media and civil society was under control of powerful oligarchic actors, uh, can be, uh, if you like, conceptually translated into the developments in Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. So we actually use specific concepts that were applied to the analysis of Ukraine and Russia to Central and Eastern Europe, and we argued that they work quite well also with regard to civil society, to the dual state, and of course to the workings of, um, of uh, political capitalism that you've mentioned uh, in your uh, question. Because we do argue that uh, next to the 
uh, duality of statehood or next to the dual state that uh, has arisen in Central Europe, Central Eastern Europe, we have also, uh, we can also, we have encountered also a rise of political capitalism, which is a specific type of capitalism. We used to understand capitalism and a variety of capitalism in very specific terms, uh, liberal capitalism, welfare capitalism. So there is this uh, specific framing of what types of capitalism uh, they are. We argue with regard to um, the writings by Max Weber, but also recent writings by uh, Branko Milanovic, that there is also something that we might call political capitalism, which is a very specific type of uh, capitalism, which is to some extent about political, about economic growth, because economic growth is a very important source of political legitimacy for uh, countries that embraced uh, uh, political capitalism, but as you said in your question, it's equally or even more importantly um, about uh, extractive institutions. So powerful actors, political actors, parties, or oligarchic actors, they use these uh, political institutions of the state that are supposed to be independent as sources, as economic sources, sources of uh, financial economic power, but also political power. And uh, there are different, uh, the dif there's different usage of that uh, because the ruling parties in Hungary and Poland, they use these extractive institutions such as um, uh, political positions within the party, political positions such as uh, deputy positions in the parliament, of course, positions of ministers in the government, but also um, members of, of boards of state-owned companies or uh, semi-state-controlled uh, companies to um, develop networks, patronal networks. And these patronal networks are very important because they allow the uh, and not only the extraction of financial resources and political resources from the state, the state becomes source, the source of power for financial power and the, uh, political power for uh, the political actors, but also they um, become the very important source of loyalty for uh, party loyalists or uh, loyalists to the oligarchic networks. And we argue that this is quite important because it changes the character of what we call capitalism. It's not very much about the market anymore. So it's not the liberal type of political um, uh, of, of uh, capitalism. It's not you know, freeing the market of the influences of the states as in the classical liberal understanding of capitalism is the case. It's not very much about the welfare state, the state that delivers services is trying to uh, act in tune with social justice where people should be integrated uh, into the uh, benefits of capitalism. It's not about workfare type of capitalism like in Denmark where there is an ethic of working and contributing to the political and economic community. It's about delivering specific social goods at a, on a very superficial uh, level and at the same time extracting uh, resources also economic resources from the state to, um, to use them as benefits to party loyalists, oligarchic loyalists. And this type of political capitalism, on the one hand, uh, has this very interesting relationship to, uh, uh, to liberal, liberal or neoliberal capitalism because 
it is dependent on foreign capital because the extraction of resources is directed mainly against state controlled companies. But at the same time, the capital needs to be attracted from abroad, right? And these countries are also heavily dependent on, on specific reputation, liberal reputation, which is uh, expressed in the international rankings, right? They're very interested in, in the, um, you know, rankings of the international uh, um, uh, firms that give certificates of reputation, if you like, which is Fitch and, you know, similar companies. But, um, uh, and at the same time, they um, introduce very convenient conditions for the functioning of the uh, foreign capital. So there are taxes that are very low. There are tax-free periods for international companies and so on and so on. So it's a form of dependence, but also independence between political capitalism and the foreign capital. And on the other hand, they try to hide this link to neoliberal capitalism because they try to give themselves the face of more socially caring type of capitalism to uh, that focuses on more redistribution of goods. But it's not really the case. It is more redistributive concerning specific goods, but it's also um, focused largely on uh, the investment, actually. So we see, for instance, a, uh, because political capitalism inv is involved heavily into propaganda and it needs to spend a lot of money on propaganda. So it heavily um, subsidizes or actually funds so-called public media, which are not public, but they are in tune with the interests of the ruling actors of the ruling party or ruling oligarchic actors. Uh, and um, at the same time, there are um, the consequence of that is that uh, there are many sectors of the society that are underfunded, specifically public health, specifically public education. So this idea that this is new phase and more socially caring phase is just partially true and just superficially true. So it's a more complicated relationship with capitalism that is often uh, expressed uh, in the propaganda of the oligarchic actors in the Czech Republic, of the, in, the, in Slovakia, the actors are so-called business firm actors, which we, we can clearly see, for instance, with regard to the ruling party, which is the ANO party, is a typical business firm party that was established by a firm, by a businessman who entered politics to increase his interest, economic interest, uh, and all by taking influence by having impact on political independent institutions and by subverting them, then we can see that with the um, Olano party in Slovakia, where we have the so-called ordinary people uh, party, that is also a business firm-like party, also a populist party, but also organized surrounding business interests that are interested in um, using the so-called the independent institutions of the state in tune with the business interests. Great, uh, thank you so much for that. I suggest we change the focus of our discussion a bit uh, next, uh, since a large part uh, of the story you tell uh, concerns the manifestations of civil society, or perhaps I should say genuine uh, civil society uh, activists. Uh, and also you focus quite extensively uh, on the relative weakness and in fact, uh, the, the ineffectiveness of political opposition uh, in these countries. 
you actually cover the, the weaknesses of liberals, of leftists, of, of green forces. Uh, so, so really quite, quite a wide spectrum of, of potential uh, oppositional forces that might uh, be able to challenge uh, these, these new types of regimes, right? So I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think might explain uh, the weaknesses uh, of, these, of these forces? And, and again, we've seen quite an, a number of, of protests, also some really large uh, political or maybe civil society based protests uh, in recent years across uh, the Visegrad uh, region uh, but but these protests seem to have yielded uh, comparatively uh, little so i was wondering why is that i mean and, and there's even a connected a uh, question right we, we might want to talk a bit about members of the younger uh, generations, right? Generations uh, that have already grown up uh, within uh, the European Union, right? All these countries entered uh, the EU some some 17 uh, years ago. So, what do we know about uh, the political attitudes uh, and activities uh, of these, so to say, young uh, Europeans? You know, would you expect uh, the generational turnover to bring substantial political changes uh, in the near future? Yes, it is a very important question that we tackle to some degree uh, in the book because we, we do uh, report or analyze the developments in the civil society in all four countries. And, uh, and th this has different reasons. The one of the reasons is that we want to highlight that there has been a vibrant civil society in, in all four countries, that these institutional changes towards more authoritarianism, that they do not uh, happen in a vacuum, right? That there are societal responses to it. So that the societies are not passive. They're not happy with these developments. Um, because oftentimes, um, specifically in, in different uh, you know, Western countries, Western European countries, we have encountered the, this analysis. Well, uh, these developments have happened in tune with the will of the society, which we think it's a, it's a wrong analysis. Uh, I heard myself many times voices saying, well, we cannot do much about the changes in the in Hungary, for instance, that was this, this famous statement by Martin Schulz, when he was um, a German SPD politician who was the president of the European Parliament, who said, well, we cannot do much about the changes in Hungary, because they're legitimate, because the uh, Fidesz government, they have a constitutional majority, so they have by definition the right to change the constitution as they see fit. Right, and uh, I remember quite recently um, hearing um, Verheugen, who was uh, the commissioner for uh, Eastern Enlargement, saying, well, the Poles actually support the peace government. So we argue in the book that this is not true, actually. It's because uh, there is a vibrant civil society. There had been protests for many years, for not for decades, of course. Of course, also for decades, because the start of the protests has been in the very beginning of the transformation processes, but to a varying degrees. There was protest in Poland, of course, um, because of social issues, nurses, people working in mines, public servants, they have been protesting, of course, mainly because of the transformation processes that were painful, of course, to many people. Um, but in Slovakia, there were political protests uh, against the, um, uh, the major governments. In the Czech Republic, there were many protests for, for decades against uh, political corruption, 
uh, involving major political parties, also those that were uh, labeling themselves as democratic, major democratic forces. We have seen um, political process in Poland already in 2015 and in Hungary beforehand that were political uh, on so many levels, right? So it's not that it's, it's a totally wrong picture to describe these societies as in tune with what has been happening. Um, of course, uh, in Hungary, but also in Poland, uh, the ruling parties won elections, right? but elections, winning elections is not the only measure of democracy, as I said before, right? So civil society, protesting civil society is also a very important measure of uh, how much legitimacy these uh, ruling parties or ruling actors have. I give you an example. For instance, when there were protests, many protests in Poland, social protests uh, about the consequences of transformation processes in the 1990s, uh, and there are many of those. At the same time, the support for democracy was increasing, right? So the, which, which tells us that uh, protest doesn't necessarily reject democracy, but uh, it embraces democracy. At the same time, we have uh, a very similar development in Poland and Hungary that huge parts of the society uh, reject the authoritarian uh, shift in both countries. And that this is also a sign of, uh, of the will of the people, if you like, that needs to be taken into account. Why, and this is a very good question, why uh, we can ask um, where the opposition party is not successful, why the Fidesz government or the, uh, the PIS government were re-elected, right? Because it's a legitimate question. One of our explanations is that the authoritarianism that uh, had been underway in Poland and Hungary, but also in the Czech Republic to some degree, was, or in Slovakia, was closely connected to a specific type of identity politics uh, and propaganda embraced by the government actors. And this identity politics uh, was quite successful uh, by introducing categories of chauvinism that are quite different. We, we could see that and we described that in the book already under Mechar who used identity politics, exclusive identity politics, because there can be different types of identity politics, but specifically chauvinistic and exclusive and xenophobic identity politics that Mecha embraced. They were um, directed against Hungarians, for instance, the Hungarian minority. They are directed against, uh, as uh, Fico, the prime minister of Slovakia said, against journalists uh, whom he described as uh, uh, prostitutes that are working against proper uh, Slovak people. Uh, we can see that in Hungary, of course, with not only with the rhetoric, but also with uh, specific laws directed against a quite paranoid, paranoid understanding of politics as, you know, the, the plan of George Soros, who wants to replace the Hungarian people by the people from the Middle East and so on. So there is a number of conspiracy theories. There is a number of chauvinist uh, policy technologies that have been quite effective because uh, a number of people are attracted by, and this is not just a case in Central and Eastern Europe. This is also a case in many other countries. We could see that in the United States. We can see that in 
uh, welfare state oriented societies of Scandinavia. We can see that in Denmark, in Sweden, in France to a larger degree. So this is something that is quite effective or seems to be quite effective as a uh, political technology. And these, uh, these authoritarian changes have been legitimized oftentimes by this type of uh, identity politics. At the same time, uh, the opposition parties were quite weak. When we try to explain the weakness of green parties and leftist, leftist parties partially with the transformation processes. So one argument is that um, green parties, uh, interestingly enough, were quite, uh, oh, um, environmental organiza organizations were quite strong in the very beginning of the 1990s. And this is a very interesting paradox on. The first um, environmental uh, Polish ecological party was already registered in the late 1980s. Then there was the Hungarian ecological party. So there are many organizations that targeted the issue of environment and environmental protection in Poland already in the late 1980s, also in Hungary, but then they lost the appeal, not necessarily uh, in general, but they, um, uh, they kind of uh, focused on the NGOs, as was also the case in Slovakia or in the Czech Republic, because in Slovakia of a pressured government uh, where Meta specifically was trying to get rid of the pressure by political pressure by civil society, he relegated to some extent a lot of opposition towards NGO, NGOs that uh, had become quite proficient and the current uh, opposition forces and the current president of Slovakia recruits uh, recruit themselves from, from NGOs uh, of different kinds, of course, not only environmental NGOs, but also environmental NGOs. And, uh, and the green forces were not, or green actors were not always um, convincing at the political level because transformation processes were uh, often about catching up, up processes, materialistic catching up processes. They were about not only rejoining uh, Western Europe or Europe in terms of specific institutions such as the European Union and NATO, they were also about rejoining the West in terms of living standards. And uh, as we know, of course, from political science, but not only from sociology, political sociology, the rise of issues such as social justice or green values, post-materialist values, they're closely connected to a specific uh, economic development um, in welfare societies, which goes back to um, Western European societies or advanced societies of 1970s, where a specific level of material economic development is reached, these issues become more and more important. It doesn't mean they're not important in Central and Eastern Europe. There is a Green Party in Hungary, for instance, that is represented in, in the parliament, but not in Poland. I mean, there are some deputies in the parliament uh, as, as members of a larger coalition. So the topics are still there, but they are not strongly represented um, when compared, for instance, to Germany or to Austria or to other countries, right? So this is partially due to the transformation processes and the leftist parties, social democratic parties are also quite weak because um, the transformation processes uh, were uh, accompanied by a very specific consensus on rejoining or joining the European Union uh, 
introducing or reintroducing specific brand of capitalism with the goal of single market of the European Union and the goals were quite econo economic, we can argue. So uh, these parties actually changed, if you like, the agenda towards a consensus concerning capitalism, making it maybe not necessarily more socialist, but actually uh, embracing it sometimes to a larger degree than many other countries. So the leftist parties, social democratic parties, lost their social democratic appeal. Many of these parties remained social democratic uh, only nominally, right? Smer in Slovakia was you know, social democratic only nominal, nominally. The Polish social democracy, yeah, they were members of the you know, Social Democratic International, but really they didn't follow any uh, social democratic agenda. And because of that, they lost the legitimacy oftentimes as such parties and the uh, certain elements of the social democratic agenda, such as redistribution of certain goods, investments in specific uh, public goods, support for families, uh, they are working class families specifically, they were embraced by conservative parties with populist appeal, such as Fidesz in, in Hungary and PIS in Poland. Hence the weakness uh, of, of the opposition parties, they're trying to reorganize themselves uh, quite effectively, I would say. Um, we could see that in Hungary with a very successful campaign during the municipal elections, uh, it is now there are many initiatives in Hungary which should become quite visible next year during the uh, parliamentary elections. Uh, there is a growing popularity of the oppositional force, forces in Poland, according to the latest polls. So we don't know what the uh, current governments will do because they do not shy away from authoritarian, uh, quite repressive uh, um, solutions, if you like, they're not repressive uh, in, in, in the sense of, you know, how they are used in Russia and the Belarus, nobody get arrested or nobody gets uh, sentenced or, you know, tortured, but there is a certain level of repressiveness. We could see that in Poland when peaceful demonstrations were uh, dissolved in a quite brutal way by the police, where the opposition candidates are harassed by, um, Mm, formerly independent uh, institutions of the state, but they are heavily under the political or party influence, if you like. So there is a certain level of repressiveness, but not as we understand repressiveness in terms of what has been happening in Russia and Belarus. Now, and of course, I didn't answer your question concerning the younger generations. And indeed, uh, we see for many years uh, a decreasing interest of younger people in politics in general, specifically concerning traditional politics. That was something that, that, that was typical, uh, not for every country of, uh, of Central and Eastern Europe, but it was typical for Poland. It was quite visible in Slovakia, also in the Czech Republic, where young people um, lost the interest in traditional politics, specifically in voting. So the um, change or switch towards um, less traditional, issue-orientated forms or alternative forms of political participation because there were protests, of course, there are, you know, politically um, loaded YouTube videos. So they kind of, they were politically active, but not in the traditional way. For that reason, 
when we take a look, for instance, con specific uh, elections like the parliamentary elections, the participation of young people was very weak. Uh, it was it was the, the political participation of all people was very weak, specifically concerning parliamentary elections. I think in Slovakia it was a you know the historical low of thirteen percent in two thousand and fourteen. Uh, and especially it was among young people that did not see much impact uh, when it comes to traditional politics. And uh, I can say you cannot really blame them, right? Specifically in, uh, in Slovakia and Czech Republic because of so-called anti-politics when in the end of the 1990s, the uh, government uh, was in league with the main opposition party in a form of a cartel uh, and they signed opposition agreement. Uh, that was the beginning of so-called anti-politics because many uh, voters argued, well, what's the case? I mean, what's, what's the sense of voting when there is a cartel, political cartel, and it doesn't really matter whom we vote into the office, there will be always this, this two parties and they made a deal. So the cartel is not a proper democracy. People lost interest in politics, even though they protested, of course, um, they demonstrated, they, uh, they were quite critical of, um, of Václav Klaus and, and Zeman's politics at different levels, but uh, they lost actually the interest in traditional politics because it was anti-politics for them, right? So it was the case in Poland because the main parties, when we go back to 2005, uh, which today is quite um, strange to think about it, given the polarization, the political polarization of today, the main opposition party and the now ruling party, they were contemplating uh, forming a coalition actually. So the PIS and the PO that are now parties, if you like, on different sides of the political front, and I call it really front because it's about culture war, it's about many issues that uh, resemble warfare and highly um, almost militarized, of course, not in a proper military sense, but you know, politically charged polarization uh, that indeed many years ago, these parties wanted to form a coalition. And that it was to many young people, it was nonsensical to go and vote. And we see that in 2015, uh, when the PIS was voted into the office, into the government, many young people did not care. But it's, it's, it's it at a change. So we see this changing. Um, and I think the new millennials, the Polish, the Hungarian millennials, the Slo Slovak millennials, and the Czech millennials, they see uh, huge problems of the political system. They see the lacking legitimacy of the major political actors in the countries. And I think they also are realizing that it's not sufficient to uh, be dedicated to um, alternative forms of political participation. They need also to vote. They need to want to take influence on uh, the uh, ruling elites. They, they need to, uh, to, to influence those ruling elites to have proper impact rather than just take part in a deliberation discourse and form a, a public space. They also will vote, I think. In Poland, I see that specifically uh, visible or visibly because um, young people were participating in the uh, huge demonstrations in the protests against the uh, radicalization of the abortion law uh, that was introduced uh, a year ago. Uh, many young people participated in that. They experienced police brutality quite directly 
There are many cases well documented that reported about how police brutally uh, beat them up, how they were humiliated, humiliated by the police, that they were, they were um, uh, hindered uh, in acquiring legal support and so on and so on. So this is a generational experience, at least in Poland, I think, that it's not just authoritarian institutional change, but also a rise of a repressive state at the same time that makes a generational experience, which was not the case, I think, in the beginning of 2015. The protests in 2015 in Poland were very much a different experience because 45, 40-year-olds, 40 50-year-olds were protesting against the encroachments of the Constitutional Court in that time. And because they were able to relate this experience to the communist experience when they protested against the communists and were involved in, against, in protest against the communist rule in that time. Uh, but for that, you need a specific age and a specific uh, horizon, uh, you know, like memory horizon. And it was kind of interesting to see that very few people participated in this protest in 2015. And this has changed radically since 2015. 20, I would say, even 16, when the first protest began on so-called, during the so-called black protests of women against uh, the radicalization of the abortion law. So I see this a change on its way uh, with regard to millennials in Central and Eastern Europe. And I think these changes are quite palpable and they, these changes will also be visible and more palpable during next elections, I think, already in Hungary in next year and in Poland in two years. Great, great. Thanks so much for that. And I suggest we also explore uh, the role of the Visegrad countries uh, in international politics, which is, again, a subject I'm sure uh, many of our listeners would, would love to hear about. Uh, you discuss in the book how, in some sense, these countries are in between the Western core and the clear autocracies, uh, such as the, the one in Russia or, or, or the one in Turkey. And at one point in the book, you refer to the, to the Visegrad Four as a Verhinderungskoalition, so basically a coalition uh, that aims to block uh, initiatives uh, rather than one that would have a more positive uh, vision, a more positive agenda of its own. So I wanted to ask you a bit about you know, how you actually assess uh, the foreign policy of these four countries. Uh, do you perhaps see a converging trends uh, when it comes to their international orientation? Would you, would you say that the V4 that we are uh, discussing and debating uh, so often uh, these days also on the European level, would this prove to be, or is it likely to prove to be a stable alliance? Or do you rather see this as a kind of temporary coalition uh, of convenience? Our argument uh, in the book is that uh, there are more differences in foreign policy than commonalities. Because uh, Visegrad 4 is mainly about two things. About, it's about limiting specific initiatives within the European Union. Right? It had begun with the so-called migration crisis and many, the majority of the countries were against that. Of course, there are different reasons for that, and uh, we can understand specific reasons. But you know, generally, it was about limiting the activities and the measures of the European Union concerning um, the its uh, refugee framework and migration framework. With some countries joining these countries, Austria specifically, 
but it is meanwhile more about a specific authoritarian trends, I, we, we argue in the book. So it's not very much about specific uh, foreign policy because uh, the divergences are really uh, strong, really visible. We argue specifically with regard to Russia, it's quite clear. Poland is one of the leading actors that uh, defines Russia as a main threat to its interests, specifically concerning energy security, whereas uh, Hungary is rather embracing collaboration with Russia in the energy sector. Um, this is also the case concerning Slovakia in the presence of Russian capital on in the Czech Republic and the openings vis-a-vis -vis the banking sector of, of, of Russia and so on. So there are different visions and frames concerning Russia on the one hand, but what combines these countries is, is a specific understanding of how politics should work politics uh, as a specific uh, yeah, democratorship, uh, as you call that, as you translated our term of democratura, or democratura uh, because uh, it seems to be a framework that is attractive to other countries. We argue also in the book that Slovenia seems to have, has embraced, to, to have embraced this, uh, this vision of democratorship under the Hungarian uh, influence, if you like, there is this, uh, popular image of the current prime minister of Slovenia as little Orban. Uh, there are influences also visible in Austria, not just uh, concerning migration and uh, refugees, but specifically under the uh, conservative government with the junior co uh, coalition partner of the FPÖ, the, the um, um, rightist populist party that clearly uh, wanted to use specific technologies against the rule of law uh, and was trying to also um, become stronger and stronger in the uh, media landscape. So specific solutions, if you like, or technologies were clearly inspired by Hungary and Poland uh, uh, that we could see in the uh, measures embraced by, by the FPÖ party, its ministers, and of course its politicians. Uh, so this is something that connects uh, the, uh, the interests within the Visegrad Four. It is also um, a willingness to uh, create alternatives to the mainstream politics of France and Germany, which sometimes takes on very strange features, we argue. For instance, there has been the uh, attempt to form a new coalition of parties within the Europe, European Parliament to include the um, far-right parties, uh, Salvini's uh, party of Italy, of course, but also the Italian Brothers, that is a far-right party, uh, including uh, Fidesz, including the Polish PIS. So it's not just a conserv conservative version, a more conservative version of the conservative parties of Western Europe. It's an openly a uh, far-right vision uh, of, uh, of doing politics in, uh, in Europe that involves, until now at least, parties that were, um, where there was a consensus that th these parties should be rather isolated in, in the European Union, parties like Front National or Rassemblement National now because they changed the name, uh, parties like Salvini's party, but also even more the, you know, the recent, recently, uh, created Vox Party of Spain that clearly 
uh, reference the authoritarian fascist regime of Franco. So these are quite disconcerting um, features of the European or international politics because it shows that a coalition with democratic uh, countries or democratic parties is not a priority for the countries of the region. And that democracy on its international stage is uh, a reputation to be perceived as a democratic party is kind of secondary. Which brings me to, to something that we kind of remark on uh, marginally in the book, but we see this development quite strongly in Poland quite recently, because Poland, we argue in the book, is quite different than Hungary, uh, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic, because they've been more open or more uh, pragmatic vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And uh, Poland, Poland has introduced more uh, open approach towards China uh, since the PIS is in power. Uh, so it was looking, on, Poland was looking for alternatives vis-a-vis -vis the United States and vis-a-vis -vis the European Union because Russia and China do not pressure uh, authoritarian regimes, which is a, also another sign for us that to be a democratic country, to, to have the reputation of a democratic party is not really a priority. Poland, specific, not every political actor in Poland uh, now, but for instance, um, there are ideas in the presidential office of Poland to collaborate to even a closer degree with China uh, have been present for some time. For some time, Poland, for instance, issued bonds uh, denominated in Chinese uh, currency on the Chinese market already a couple of years ago, uh, whereas Hungary was uh, trying to get a loan from, from Russia. So this difference that we describe on the one, one hand vis-a-vis -vis Russia and vis-a-vis -vis China is not that clear anymore. So we kind of uh, remarked this on the one hand that there is still enough differences uh, between Poland and Hungary, but there, are, there seem to be decreasing, interestingly enough, specifically with the recent conflict um, with the United States with so-called Lex uh, um, TVN, which is uh, a law that is supposed to limit the pluralism of media in Poland, which is also directed against economic um, American economic interests, which brought Poland into conflict with, with the United States. It shows that uh, mm, there will be probably, and there is already more openness towards other authoritarian regimes than China, probably also all towards Russia, even though on, on the you know, superficial level, there is still this demonstrative uh, rejection of Russia as a threat, but we see with regard to measures embraced by the current Polish government that Russia is, um, uh, probably a country that uh, might be seen uh, as a country to be collaborated with on some levels. Mm -hmm. Great. Again, I suggest we close our conversation today with looking more directly into the role of the European Union and also talking a bit more about current prospects. In the book, you write about a rather helpless European Union, a European Union which has not really done sufficiently well at the time of the Big Bang enlargement of the early 21st century. It has not, not really done, it has not really managed to spread 
a culture of democracy and a societal appreciation of the rule of law at the time, and which in fact also has a rather unconducive architecture to tackle a diversening a political crisis in the Visegrad states and, and not only there, right? So I was wondering whether you could say a few words about how could the EU actually become more effective and more successful in the future when it comes also to the protection and the promotion of democracy, one should say? Or would you say that further radicalization of these individual states we have been discussing today is much more likely and that it could even lead to a new kind of division of Europe, a new kind of East-West divide. We, we do argue in the book that the European Union was quite um, complacent about itself because um, for many years, also in, in the research in political science, there was this conviction that uh, the membership in the European Union is a guarantee of democracy oftentimes with reference to other member states that uh, were democratized, at least it was assumed that they were democratized by the European Union or where democracy was stabilized um, through the membership of the European Union, such as you know, Portugal, Spain, and, and Greece that were um, dictatorships beforehand. And that it's enough actually, because the, because uh, it's enough to be a member of the European Union. It's about specific identity. It's about constitutional, constitutional identity of the European Union. And the EU doesn't need um, any specific institutions to punish the countries because uh, there is this identity, democratic identity of the European Union. And it had turned out that um, the European Union was wrong about that that uh, it, there were mechanisms introduced, of course, to punish some of the countries, but uh, they're not very effective because the European Union assumed, well, there might be one country specifically, and um, the Austrian experience was the, um, uh, was the catalyst for that, the, the, the first participation of the Apple in the um, trusted government back in 1999, in 2000, where this kind of diplomatic pseudo-sanctions were introduced against Austria and they have proven to be uh, ineffective, inefficient. Right? Now, uh, then there were, with the Lisbon Treaty, there was the uh, Article 7 that was introduced and the possibility of depriving a country of uh, its um, decision-making capabilities, if you like, uh, but under very difficult circumstances. So uh, it's just, it has to be one country. And if two countries or with three countries, we have a huge problem, of course, in the European Union. So our argument is in the, in the book that the political elites of the European Union, they misunderstood the problem of democratic consolidation in the region, but also in other countries, because we argue, well, this democratic backsliding can happen in every country, actually. We saw that in the United States. Uh, under the Trump administration, not to the same degree because Trump was uh, um, outvoted. Actually, he you know he lost his vote uh, during the recent presidential elections. But we see similar developments, populist developments in the UK. So these um, the democratic backsliding is not reserved for countries that um, 
have a history or they have this uh, legacy of or experience with non-democratic systems such as communist, formerly communist countries, but uh, it could happen in every country. We will see that in France, how strong the Front National will be during elections, uh, um, presidential elections. So it's it's more complicated, right? So it's not it's not just centrally in Eastern Europe. That's our argument, but we argue that the European Union needs to do something about that. That the current uh, institutional setup of the EU is not sufficient. And that needs to develop a number of institutions that need, need to deal with rule of law violations. And because um, it's certainly not just about Poland and Hungary, and uh, oftentimes the current uh, representatives of the current governments in both countries try to make it like it was mainly about Poland and Hungary, but there are many other procedures, rule of law violation procedures against a number of countries in the European Union also against Germany, also against France. So it's something that is on the way. Uh, they're not against rule of law violations in the sense like in Poland and Hungary, but uh, they're against violations of the, the treaties, for instance, right? So it's something that the European Union uh, has to deal with and it needs to be uh, more um, effective concerning that. So there are a number of solutions uh, that are and now in the academic discourse, and they need to be taken seriously, one of the solutions is, for instance, that um, countries might be punished like international corporations, for instance, not just by cutting specific structural funds, but like Google or Apple, they would need to be punished by with, with fines of, I don't know, $1 billion, for instance, or euros, and that will it might bring some of the countries to the census so the european union needs powerful instruments they need to be legitimate of course but they need to be powerful to um, deal with uh, rule of law violations which are real they're not just cases of misunderstanding of how the law is functioning in poland and hungary which is often the argument by the hungarian and polish ruling elites that, well, the European Union doesn't understand the um, specifics of the Polish constitutional law, that's wrong. Um, uh, so uh, there needs to be changed. So the European Union needs to be more um, serious about uh, how it can impact such uh, cases, because it's not just about new divisions within the European Union, it's also about the survival of the European Union as a community. The European Union uh, as a community has developed a specific identity. It wasn't a, an identity from the very beginning because for many, for, for decades, the European Union was a project that was focused on peace, on bringing peace to, to the continent. But starting in the 1990s, it is a project about rule of law and democracy. Uh, we can, of course, argue, well, it wasn't the case in the original treaties. Well, it wasn't the case in the original treaties, but it's now the case. Uh, if we take a look at the Aki um, Communautaire, uh, if we take a look at uh, how the European Court of Justice uh, decided many times and how we uh, see the dynamics of the legal dynamics of the European Union, and it's about the European credibility and its legitimacy. So it's, it's if it's not able 
to tackle the problem of rule of law, uh, it will not be able to remain a, a legitimate uh, political system uh, that embraces the values of democracy and rule of law, and it will remain inefficient, ineffective, and uh, this is not only about divisions and survival, of the, uh, not just about divisions, but also about the survival of the European Union. It might lead to some divisions, of course, within the European Union. Of course, it's quite possible that the um, countries would even increase more uh, the conflicts surrounding rule of law. But this is also a technology that suited the countries well, because the European Union was not willing to, uh, to go through with the conflict. So I think the, the European Union was too soft and was too duped too many times, by, specifically by the Hungarian government, uh, and manipulated many times. There are many cases, uh, and well-documented cases, where the Hungarian government sent uh, wrongly or incorrectly translated documents, its own constitution or its own uh, statue of the um, of the constitutional court to European Union. So there are many cases where uh, there was a manipulation and uh, games played by Hungary, also by Poland to some extent, um, and needs, it needs to end. And the so-called pragmatic approach by the European Union it needs also to change if the European Union is serious about dealing with the rule of law violations. And this is quite important because the European Union is not only about the member states, it's not only about the countries that are members in the European Union, but also about citizens. It has this um, double legitimacy structure. It is the member states that deliver legitimacy, democratic member states, but also the citizens that uh, participate, for instance, in elections for the European Parliament that are also um, a very important pillar of the EU legitimacy. And by tolerating authoritarian developments, by tolerating rule of law violations, the EU basically rescinds its obligations to protect European citizens in Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia. And this is a serious problem. So as we argue in the book, it's not just about divisions, uh, which might be serious, of course, but it, it is much more about the credibility of the European Union itself. It's about its own identity. And finally, at the end of the day, it's about the survival of the European Union as a political community. Excellent. Thank you. I think that might just be uh, the perfect uh, spot to end on uh, for today. I have had uh, the pleasure of talking to uh, Ireneusz Pavel Karolewski today. Professor Karolewski has just uh, co-authored with Klaus Legevi a wide-ranging and rich uh, interpretation of important ongoing developments in the Visegrad countries titled The Visegrad Connection, A Challenge for Europe, uh, which is again a book that will be out uh, in the German language in September uh, 2021. Thank you so much for discussing your book at Revdem, Professor Karolewski. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for listening. Until the next time.